the Democrats hate the Republicans and the Republicans hate the Democrats and I don't like anyone very much. Well, that's an old refrain, but it has an especially familiar ring to it these days. Fox News hates CNN and CNN hates Fox News and it's becoming more difficult to find anyone who likes anybody else very much. And that's exactly the point of a brand new book, Love Your Enemies, by best-selling author Arthur Brooks, who is currently president of the American Enterprise Institute and who next year will be joining me as a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. But today I have Arthur Brooks with me on the Education Exchange to discuss his important new contribution, Love Your Enemies. Arthur, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul, and congratulations on this podcast. Well, Arthur, you tell me I can become angry at my wife and my children and my office staff, but the one thing I can't do is have contempt for them or for anybody else. So what's the difference between anger and contempt? You know, this is something that has been perplexing me for a long time, because as we've seen the degradation, the systematic polarization of American politics, I mean, you were quoting Tom Lehrer before, the famous song, and, and the, as we've moved from disagreement to a, a real kind of hatred in our, in our country politically, I've scratched my head and said, you know, what has changed? You know, people will say, well, populism has changed it, or social media has changed it, and actually I don't think these explanations are quite right. I think we've moved from political anger to political contempt. Now, anger is a hot emotion. I do work on happiness, and which is happiness and love are the, the main areas that I look at as, as, a, as a researcher. And what you find is that, that, that happiness, particularly marital happiness or relationship happiness, is not degraded systematically by anger. Anger says, basically, I want you to do something different or think differently. I want to change your behavior because I care about what you think or do. What happens is when you take anger and you mix in a another characteristic, disgust, it becomes cold. You take anger and you put in disgust and it says, you, become, you basically see other people as a kind of a pathogen at that point, and you say, you're not worth caring about. And, and this is what really destroys relationships. When disgust creeps in, you move from saying, I care about you, to saying, you are utterly worthless. Schopenhauer defined contempt as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. So you're saying that if I'm, if I'm going to be uh, angry at my wife, just make sure I don't become, be contemptuous because pretty soon that relationship's going to be destroyed. That's correct. So John Gottman, who, te who teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle, he's the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation, he says that contempt, signs of contempt, eye-rolling, sarcasm, disdain, dismissal, these things are the main leading indicator of a couple that's about to divorce, and they're the main leading indicator of what will destroy any friendship or just it, any human relationship, as a matter of fact. We have a million ways of, of picking up that when somebody has contempt for us, and this is when somebody treats you with contempt, you, you never quite forget it. When it becomes part of our political discourse in a country, like it has been in the United States, that's when people will lock down into their corners and will get extreme polarization, which by all lights is worse than it's been today than at any time since the Civil War. But sometimes you feel like that person deserves contempt, and now you're saying, but I'm going to harm myself as much as I'm going to harm this other person if if I am contemptuous. So why is it that I'm harming myself when I see that somebody is worthless? 
Well, to begin with, there's a very practical argument about this, which is when you treat somebody with contempt, you will never, ever persuade that person. And if we're in the business of trying to get people to think differently or to join our point of view, at very least, insulting them will never bring people to agreement. It never has in human history. So it's a, a completely counterproductive way to treat other people. The second problem with it is that it, it, it fails to separate people from their ideas. You know, this is actually there. A lot of people who are getting famous, powerful, and rich by trying to convince us that people are the same as their ideas, and as such, when you disagree with a person, you should hate the person. But, but that's not how most of us are naturally behave, nor what we naturally think. And that's a moral problem. It also has problems as a self-destructive thing to do. When you're treated with contempt by somebody else, it tends to, it, it raises levels of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. And when you treat another person with contempt, your own happiness falls, not just because you destroy the relationship, but because treating other people with contempt is inherently a deeply conflictive thing to do. No good comes from it. Nobody's persuaded. Nobody gets happier. Nobody, no relationships are actually enhanced. And, and, of course, the society, the country gets worse. Well, you know, this reminds me of a TV show on PBS that I saw where the interviewer asked Antonin Scalia why he was friends with... Um, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, when when he actually said things and opinions, uh, you're totally wrong. And he would say very strong words about what she said in her opinions, yet they would ride elephants together. And Scully right. would say, I don't hate her. I just don't think her ideas are any good. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, and that's a that's a, a, a an observation that people have made about the two of them, and, and they've found it almost remarkable in modern American life. And yet, that's how most people are in their private lives. You know, one of the things that I've you know I had a very interesting experience back in 2014 as the the, the train of polarization and contempt was rolling down the tracks. Uh, I was doing a, a speech in New Hampshire for a bunch of conservative activists, six or seven hundred of them. And I said in the middle of my speech, look, um, I'm telling you things about economic and foreign policy that you agree with, but let's remember all the political progressives who don't agree with us, and remember they're not stupid and evil, they're simply Americans who disagree with us on policy, and our job is to convince them, is to persuade them. Uh, no applause, of course, and then a lady gets applause because she says, I think they're stupid and evil. Yes, well, you're saying in your book that contempt is more of our politics today than ever before. But, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson, had they exchanged very harsh words through the press. Civil War was fought. Republicans thought FDR was the mark of the beast forecast by the Book of Revelations. Ronald Reagan was hated by Democrats. Are, are things really all that different than in the past? Um, I think that we certainly have seen lots and lots of periods that were marked by political contempt, certainly move, um, up, up going into the 1850s, going into the Civil War. But those are the most dangerous times in American history. Those are the times when policy and political progress was least possible. Uh, just as it is in any society where you have contempt between people, it just progress comes. It's not as if this is something new. It's not as if there's been never a case where people treat each other with contempt. But again, the, what history tells us is when contempt is, is characterizing societies, that's when you get the least progress, and that's what the mistake that we're making today. And it's a correctable mistake. So why do you think there is so much contempt in our politics today? 
Well, there's a, there are some, some institutional explanations for it. So as an economist, I like to look at the, the role that financial crises play in polarization and, and these cultures of contempt. You know, what you find is after a financial crisis and the decade following, ordinarily uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, un, uneven economic growth. So about 80% of the population for at least 10 years doesn't see very much of the fruits of economic growth. And as a result of that, they tend to become, there's a lot of envy populist politicians uh, become successful by saying somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back and that environment of populism leads to polarization leads to contempt, leads to a, a really a very unhealthy political environment that happens a couple of times a century and it's happened pretty reliably is what we've seen. The other problem that we have is that we have a unique political e ecosystem where the conditions lend themselves to people being able to treat each other with contempt on things like social media. Social media is a place where you can silo your news feeds so you don't hear from other points of view. Social media is also a forum where everybody can be an international pundit and do so anonymously. And an anonymity is a contempt, is a contempt fomenting mechanism. Anonymity is incredibly bad for human relationships because people dehumanize themselves before they get into a relationship or get into a conversation with somebody else. So the, 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 the mix of the financial crisis, social media, siloed news feeds, and anonymity altogether kind of a unique ecosystem to create this noxious brew that we see today. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I often uh, think that the pub political primaries are part of the problem because it used to be that, you know, the political machines would pick the candidates for the parties. Now we have these primaries where people are only speaking to themselves. And it, it, the more extreme you are, the more attention you get in those primaries. Only a few people vote. And that creates a, an environment within each of the two political parties that's more extremist and more filled with this kind of contemptuous language about the people on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, basically, you can get this the the, the ferment going with only you know five or ten percent uh, of the population on one side or the other. Uh, those are the people who are most motivated to to turn out work, work in primary elections or to to stir up um, very very harsh sentiments. You're going to see that the you're going to see that the outrage industrial complex, as I call it in the book, between. Uh, just the, the politicians, the media, and even on college campuses, that they, they reflect more radicalism and more hatred than what ordinary people have in their lives. You know, I ask, Paul, I ask people um, in, in speeches all the time, I say, how many of you love people with whom you disagree politically? And every hand, hand goes up, yeah, which is great. Uh, what that suggests is that people are basically being, are being ginned up into a, a level of contempt and hatred toward their own loved ones by total strangers, which is the most amazing thing, and yet that's the system in which we find ourselves. Now, that, that led me to change my thinking a lot, because I'm an, I'm an institutional guy. I'm a, I'm a policy professor. I'm thinking about government, and I'm thinking about politicians, I'm thinking about how we can systemically change our culture. But that's the wrong way to think about it in this case. All social revolutions, all social movements, where something was deeply wrong and suboptimal, so institutionalized racism, for example, led to the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement wasn't fundamentally about the Department of Justice. 
the civil rights movement fundamentally was about people changing their own hearts, finding that they wanted to live up to their own best values and be happier and more effective as people. And that's the same thing that we need to do in this case, is to recognize that when I am contemptuous, like I might not be able to change America single-handedly, but when I as a person am am contemptuous, number one, I'm not persuasive to anybody who doesn't already agree with me, and I'm creating more unhappiness around me, and I'm less happy as a person. So I can correct those things whether the country gets better or not. Arthur, the civil rights movement began on the campuses in large part, not only there, of course, but uh, in your coming to, uh, to Harvard this, this coming fall. So the question I have for you, do you think the university can be a place where you can create this new vision of people really taking one another seriously as individuals rather than just uh, attacking them for their ideas? Or do you think the contempt idea has just now pervaded the university community. I think it has pervaded a lot of the university community, but I think that universities are places that can be the epicenter of a new day in the way that we think, in the way that we behave and and treat each other. Why? Because universities are sort of fairly utopian uh, microclimates of culture not to mix all my metaphors, but one of the things that we see is that universities can change very, very quickly. And they can they can change the way that people think very quickly. There's a lot of young people, a lot of people who are quite impressionable. There are a lot of uh, intellectuals who want to experience and experiment with different ideas. And so that's why the civil rights movement was able to take hold so quickly and so pervasively and effectively on college campuses. I think that we could actually create a social movement. I mean, we need to bring love back into our lives and to share it more with each other. I think that the university campuses are ideal places to do it. Right now, they're in real, a real crisis, a sort of a desiccated love environment. What you find is that, that even dating on college campuses is 30 percentage points lower than it was in the 1980s. So people have just fewer you know, close love relationships of every type um, on campuses that we've seen before. So I think they're ripe for change. You could say, okay, well, that means they're terrible, but that doesn't mean they'll be terrible forever. I think in that threat lies a real opportunity for universities to show the way of how America and the world can change. Well, we have an issue here at Harvard now where we have students demonstrating against Ronald Sullivan, the master of Winthrop House, who is defending Harry Weinstein uh, in this uh, sexual harassment case. Now, is that the example of the kind of thing you think is is to be concerned about on the campus? or? What, oh, for sure, there? because I think that what, what's happened is that there, the current environment is one in which there's so much fear, so much, so much contempt in, in the culture and that, that is allowed to be ginned up on college campuses where you know, leaders that are quite irresponsible will tell students, will tell very impressionable young people that they are right, they're right to be afraid of things with which they disagree, and the other side who holds those view, views, those people are deviant, are inherently deviant people. You know, you can't make common cause with a deviant person. You can with somebody who's a person just like you, but who has points of view that are mistaken. And so I think that what's what's happened in, in cases like the, the case that you just raised, or, or many others like it, is that young people have been led poorly, have been misinformed. And I think by creating a new environment that, that young people can they can really become the warriors for a culture that is based more in love, more in in solidarity, more in in a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. Well, it's always occurred to me that this is a great opportunity to talk about John Adams, who defended British soldiers accused of massacring Boston civilians uh, before the Revolutionary War. 
you know, he, he just said, well, they, they, des they deserve an attorney, and, and I'm going to be the attorney in this case. For sure, and that's exactly what, I mean, clearly that Professor Harvard is not saying, oh, I'm sure, you know, hooray for Harvey Weinstein. But he's saying that under the American system, everybody deserves a representation, and good representation at that. I mean, I think it's, a, I mean, people who, uh, it's interesting. My, my father used to say that the mark of moral courage is not to stand up against the people with whom you disagree. No, it's to stand up. To, the, to those with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. That's the true mark of moral courage. And this is what our Harvard colleague is doing, and which is the essence of what it means in a, in, a, in a system like our criminal justice system, and what all of us can, in point of fact, do in the culture of contempt today, is to look at people on our own political side, whether that's Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals, or something in between, and to say, what are people doing on my side that's actually creating a culture of contempt, that's ripping our country apart, that's leading to lower unhappiness? How can I stand up to that on behalf of people with whom I disagree? Boy, that is a hard thing to do, but, but that's what tough, strong people do to repair the culture and to create a lot more solidarity. Well, this is fascinating material. You have five rules at the end of your book, and I'm just going to look at the fifth rule. You say you need to take a time out. Now, doesn't that, I mean, you're saying you need to get engaged and talk to other people, but then you're also saying take a time out. So are you, how do I do both of those things? <laughs> One of the things that's really disturbing about modern culture today is that we're getting flooded with extraneous information. So we have a very hard time focusing on what matters most because we're being distracted by things that we're being told are very important, but that actually aren't. So one of the things that I recommend to students and friends and, you know, and when I'm giving speeches, I recommend that people, they take a tiny bit of time off to see how it changes their cognition toward the events of the day, whether they can become more focused on what matters or whether they start losing the stream. And so one of the things I'll, I'll tell people to do is to delete, delete the, the Twitter app from their phone so they can't just compulsively look at what's going on on Twitter when they have nothing else to do. And what people will inevitably find is that they'll be perfectly aware of what's going on around them, but they'll be able to filter out the extraneous junk that's simply being in, that's being proposed to them by the outrage industrial complex to gin up their 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 contempt and hatred and they'll focus they'll, they'll, they'll focus a lot more on the things that matter more according to their values so i think that it's important to have a filter in our lives such that we're not distracted from the things that matter most and that means actually paying a little bit less attention to the moment to moment events well, thank you, Arthur. This is a fascinating message that you have, a very important message for our time. Uh, I have been speaking with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute and the author of the important new book published by Harper Collier, Love Your Enemies. Thank you, Arthur, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for this important program, and I'm looking forward to joining you at Harvard. Thank you. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.